and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado on the Anschutz Medical Campus, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Michael Williams. Dr. Williams is a neuropathology fellow at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We'll hear about the experiences that shaped his training and his route to pathology, and what advice he has for trainees considering careers in pathology. We'll also hear about the new podcast he started, the Diversify in Path podcast. You can learn more about Dr. Williams on Twitter at BlueHatComics85, and the Diversify in Path podcast is on Twitter at Diversify in Path. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, hi, friends. This is Dr. Michael Williams, and I'm here on another podcast (laughs) with PathPod today. Well, glad to have you back on PathPod. It's really fun having you on the game show. It's good to see you again. Yes, it's good seeing you too. It's been, um, it's yeah, it was a little while ago that it was so fun. I remember just laughing a lot. So, oh yeah, (laughs) the the quiz shows are so much fun to record, and and it it hurts my face to edit them because I just laugh the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Those are have to be the best um, editing parts of of the podcast. So for those. Um, listening, like I, in general, I, I talk to myself about this. Um, and Dr. Arnold knows too, and then the PathPod team knows. Like behind the scenes, the editing is probably one of the um, a skill that you learn on the fly, and yes. <laughs> it can take time. Either you know, you can say an hour or several hours to edit a podcast, depending mm-hmm. on you know, how much stuff there is. And so I'm still learning to do that, but, um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll bring it up more later, you know, of course, and tell people about like the process behind it and stuff. Cause oh, yeah. I'm excited to tell people. <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> wait to hear all about your podcast and how you've been doing it, but just, just for anybody who doesn't know a whole lot about you, tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you got into pathology. Yes. Hi friends. This is Mike Williams again. So I'm from the Bronx, New York. And originally when I was younger, I decided that I wanted to do medicine. And I had decided that I was going to do that and wanted to have this like perfect way that I was going to enter medicine, like the finishing college at a young age, like, you know, 21, 22. I mean, we're also young, but 21, 22. Um, and then getting into medical school, doing residency, and then being finished with everything so that by the time I'm in the in my 30s, and this is me planning when I was younger, I would be practicing doing medicine and seeing what I can do next. Now, I, I originally thought family medicine was for me. I thought that's where I was going because I wanted to go back to the South Bronx and be part of a clinic or help open up a clinic and help those there in terms of healthcare because I felt like that was the way that I can help with the community I grew up in. So I applied to um, college right after, like during high school. Now, I just wanted to, um, I just always unveil more and more layers about my story, but when I was in high school, I remember I, I didn't I didn't think about it much, but I felt weird because the guidance counselor kept on trying to have me to go to this one expensive college in Massachusetts. I forgot what it was, um, and I just said I was thinking like I can't afford this, and I felt this pressure to do that. And I think he mentioned something about like diversity, and it was very awkward because this was basically this tall white guy, and I'm just like this you know, black kid in, in a high school, more in the suburbs. And I'm just like, uh, okay. Like, and it, it didn't seem like, it, it seemed like he had external pressures to have me, to give me these options. So I applied to a college and I got in. Now the tricky part was that we couldn't afford the cost of the college. And I, my mother and my family and I, we were, we were, sort of scrambling to figure out how exactly am I going to go on with this career? How am I going to get into medicine? I've been working so hard in high school and all that. So I went to a, um, I think a Catholic uh, college and talked to them and they were talking about night classes. And I'm just like, well, I guess night classes and being able to 
work throughout the day to, I guess, somewhat afford this like private education. And I remember the the counselor um, there, which was one like I I want to say a life changing event, had said, you know, why don't you try going to community college now? Uh, I don't know how it is for everybody else, but I remember in high school, community college was very looked down upon because people thought it was just like an extension of high school. Like you weren't doing anything, like you had to go to a big college in order to be successful and show people that you're like being better than you were in high school. And so when I checked out community college, I was like, wow. So I went to community college, decided to do uh, biology and pre-med. And when I went into the pre-med tract, I realized that I also liked the mathematics because we had to take um, algebra and trigonometry. And then I took a, uh, a semester of calculus and I fell in love with it. And so I was like, all right, like here is the next step. Do I continue on with this pre-med track and do biology or do I look at the mathematics aspect and see what I can do with that? I decided to do the mathematics aspect, and luckily the mathematics department, um, and this was uh, SUNY Orange in Middletown, New York, the mathematics department was right next to the engineering department, and I was able to um, do an engineering, get an associate's in engineering. So then from there, I did chemical engineering at University of Buffalo. So for those chemical engineers, hey, y'all, what's up? Um, I did that, and then I didn't get into med school the first time. And I, I, I tell people this story, like I, I had no idea about how medical school applications worked. Uh, I had applied to several schools just off the cuff by myself. And I remember thinking it was like, it was probably, was it April? And I, and I didn't hear back from anybody. So I'm like, well, maybe, you know, I, you know, being, being somewhat, optimistic, like maybe like they just got my phone number wrong or maybe they got my email wrong. So I called, I called one of the medical schools and I won't say which one, but I called one of them and uh, I, they told me that, well, if you didn't hear back from us, then you didn't get in and hung up the phone. And I said, wow, okay. You know, and then going back to my dorm and getting in a, uh, a rejection letter as well, you know, that really was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm here in college at least. Like, how do I continue on with this path if I'm not getting into med school the first time? Anyway, I, I decided to, with talking to some of the college counselors, talking to some mentors I had, I applied to grad school, got a master's degree. Um, and also I want some of stuff along the way. I do want to shout out those who are doing PhDs or masters because grad school is also a beast. You know, met this med school, which is own thing, grad school, it's another thing, like shout out to y'all because y'all amazing. Um, and then got the master's degree, worked for a year and then applied to med school and then got in. I did, I decided that I liked the pathology and the anatomy portion of stuff. Uh, and when I say stuff, meaning that the course is in medical school. And then when I was in third year, I worked with like awesome surgery residents and like I got to see where their life was like as senior residents. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Maybe like when I do surgery, like I decided to switch surgery in terms of like application process and send out my applications for surgery. Cause I, I was like, wow, they're so awesome. I love talking to them. And well, I applied to 79 programs for surgery. I got eight interviews. I had a fight for a ninth one. And I realized I'm not magic into surgery. Like I just knew I wasn't. So I was my I was my fourth year of medical school, and I remember this so distinctly. I was doing a urology elective, and um, and this is before, and you know I I knew mentally like I just I was so down throughout the last fourth like the fourth year, um, and I was like wow why didn't I just you know stick with pathology? But um, I was just like well we'll see what happens in a match you know and I can go on from there. Anyway, so I was doing a urology elective and it turns out the senior resident I was working with had just matched into whatever urology fellowship they were doing. So they were like super pumped up and super excited. And it was that Monday of that week of match. And I, I remember like 12 o'clock is when you get notified yes or no. Mm-hmm. I've got an email at 1145 from the medical school that says, you have to come see us. You unfortunately didn't match. And, you know, like, 
I'm in a urology elective and I'm just like reading this email and I'm just like, how do, like, what is happening right now? Like, I've done all this work and like, this is what I have to show for it. Um, so I had to talk to the urology resident and the attending that was there. And I told him quite like, hey, I just, I have to step out. I have to go to the medical school because they requested me. And the, the resident at that, he was a chief resident. He was like, why do you have to go? I'm like, they requested me. I just, I have to go. And so after two, like, you know, when people say things and not so many like words, but they have to go somewhere to like, for something important, let them go, you know? And so just let them go. And so I had to say, I didn't match. I have to go to the medical school to figure out what's happening for the rest of my life. And they're like, oh, oh, you know what? Take the rest of the day off. I was so irritated. I was so (laughs) irritated. It was like, like, dude, listen, I said I had to go to the medical school. It's not like I'm going out and be like, whatsoever. Like, I got to go. So that leads to me, like, actually saying out loud, wow, I didn't match. Went through the soap process, um, did a preliminary surgery, uh, worked with two of the most malignant people I've ever worked with in my life. Though, I have to say, for the remainder of the program for surgery, like, I did love working with the other residents and nurses and social workers and everybody else. Like, they were they were great. But I just knew surgery wasn't for me. And I was like, pathology it is. Like, I should have chose pathology in the beginning. So I did an elective for pathology and got those recommendation letters, wrote my my application up, but then had to go back in service and surgery and was um, kind of tired and exhausted because I went back in service. And I sent my application out, like, I think mid-October. And I was like, well, we'll see what happens. Like, it's either this or I have to do another, like, prelim year somewhere else. And then I got interviews. And when I interviewed at SUNY Upstate Pathology in Syracuse, New York, I felt like that was a place that I was going to end up. So come match day, I think, wasn't it over? I had to work it overnight. And I was just super excited. So I talked to the chief residents that I, that I liked and respected um, in surgery. And they were like, good luck. Like, you know, we're sure you can you know, get where you're going. And I'm like, I was like, Ooh, I feel like upstate's going to be where I'm going. So I passed out, got home, passed out, got up at like two, this is like nine o'clock, passed out, got up at like one PM and got the email. It was like, welcome to the upstate. I was like, yeah, all right. Like I'm trusting my gut. Like maybe this is the way to go. So that's my, like in a nutshell life story of how I got into pathology. Well, that's amazing. And it sounds like that took a lot of determination to stick with it through all that. Did you have mentors that helped you kind of stay on that path or was that all it was very self-driven that you had that determination to get it done no no i i did i did have people who believed in me uh in or mentors and so there was one dr david milling who helped me like when i was applying when i was in grad school and i felt down like can i really get in he was really encouraging and helping me with my essays um like when i could meet with him and it was so great to do that because of the fact that I had somebody like, hey, you can do it like, you know, pumping me up. And then throughout, I, 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 would, I wouldn't say mentors, but more of like people who were just supportive in that aspect, who knew what I was doing and, you know, kind of going. And I mean, it, I, I don't know what it is, like how everybody else's experience was, but when you're switching residencies, it's, it's you know, a gamble because it's, it's I feel like you know, is a program going to be supportive? Like, you know what, you found somewhere else where you, you're going to shine and we support you, or is it going to be like, well, you know, hurry up and leave because you're not one of us. So go from there. So for the most part, I did have really supportive, um, like surgery residents who were just like, you know, find what makes you happy and then kind of go on from there. For them, it was surgery. They couldn't do anything else and they loved it. And I found pathology and I was just like, I need to explore this path. And, and I liked it in medical school. At least I'm glad that it kind of came back in a way full circle so that I can go and explore that in that aspect. That's quite a journey. And now that you've gone through residency, you're a, a fellow in neuropathology mm-hmm. and you're also doing a forensics fellowship. Yep. What, what drew you to those fields? So it goes back to the liking of the anatomy Um, and my interest in surgery. So let me take a step back. When I was interested in surgery and and seeing the surgical, um, doing the surgery rotation in medical school, I was really 
excited to see like how surgeons can use anatomy and their knowledge of anatomy to help treat a patient. So they were doing some of the medical, but mostly the, with the surgical aspect, like how they're going to approach it. They had, they really had to know their anatomy. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I, I like the aspect of surgery, but everything else I was not really a fan of. Um, I said, I need to do something that incorporates like my like love of anatomy throughout. And so when I was doing my pathology rotation and we got to do, I got to participate in autopsies like with the group, but, but also with the senior resident. And I got to also see brain cutting. I, I didn't touch any brains, but I got to witness it. And I was so excited when they were like, all right, like you, ha-, and this is a hospital autopsy, by the way. Um, Again, for for those who are new to the podcast, <laughs> for those who don't who are interested in pathology or listening to this, um, or for those who are in high school or in different fields, like we do, there's hospital autopsies when there's a, a autopsy that's occurring, of course, within the hospital, um, and then there's forensics cases which are different. So I did the hospital autopsy. Was super excited that I was able to get in, be with the resident, help with the organ dissection, and then putting in cassettes and like coming up with a report to help understand like what is like what was the cause of death. And when I presented it, it was so like it was it was great. There was laughter and maybe I'm just like reminiscing on this and like romanticizing about it. But I remember there was laughter because everywhere I go there's some sort of laughter regardless of how much of who I make of myself. <laughs> um and I basically said like I love this. This energy is hype. This energy is dope. I liked what I did. I loved it. I love the neuropath. I love the anatomy. And so when I entered pathology, I was just like, oh, this is perfect. This is what I'm going to do. Now, I, I, I did want to address something um, because there was and probably still is this underlying current for those applying to pathology, not to mention forensics. I kind of wrote, I wrote a tweet about it because it was really annoying to to hear that, you know, in like a, a, a applicant who's possibly go, possibly going to a program out there, is gonna doesn't want to tell the place they're going that um, they're interested in forensics because of the fact that I feel like it's probably still looked down upon. And there's people's experiences where they're told, you know, you're smart, you're you're smart. Why would you do that? I remember when I was a student, um, I told somebody, I told pathologist I was doing forensics and I was interested in it and their response was like oh my god why are you picking such a non-intellectual field and so it was just like interesting but wow, that's really surprising and it's I think it's a, I'm assuming but like I, I'm not probably the only one who was told that and it seems like based on what other people's experiences are like they've had the same sort of experience where it was like you know don't say or choose or maybe hear like to say that you're interested in forensics because there's some sort of negative connotation about that. Now, this is me going as an applicant. And I remember like at that point, like I already did a, a year of surgery. So like I, I was just, I guess fearless is the way of doing it. Like if you do, I, <laughs> you do a year in the floors and doing surgery, you're just like, you know what is not to be an ego thing, but like you went through a whole bunch of stuff. So at this point, you just come and bring what you what you bring. And so I had um, I had told people that I was doing forensics, I was interested in it. And I seems that I personally got like positive re- um, reinforcement with that because my, my essay had that. But I also said that I was interested in other fields of pathology too, because I didn't know what else was in there. So why not be interested in a field that has so much more expensive stuff than just forensics? Um, so yeah, so forensics and neuropathology, and there was a year, I think second year where I kind of wavered because we do so like search path, we do a lot of clinical pathology. We had like a mix of SUNY upstate, um, in our first two years, both both AP and CP. And I was like, well, maybe I could do search path or maybe I could do cytopath. And so, and heme path, I was so interested. So I was interested in all these other fields, but eventually I was like, I, I'm going to miss the, the aspect of like cutting, and said forensics and neuropathos for me. So there's such a such a tremendous need for forensic pathologists. Mm-hmm. It's a really mm-hmm. in-demand field. So I I, yeah. I 
I'm kind of surprised that someone would discourage people from going, you know, mentioning that as their area of interest. Cause I think that we need more of those people. Right. No, we, we do. And, and, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know why it's a thing or why it's seen as like non-intellectual. I, and I, I don't know what it is amongst various people. I mm. think there are some who are just like, okay, cool. Like that's your interest. Perfect. And maybe, I, and I don't know, but I've heard, or I've heard that there were people who were told not to say that Interesting. for some esoteric reason or another. And so if, I mean, I think I was talking to somebody about this, like, can you imagine like people not really going into forensics because maybe a lack of interest or they find something else or all the other aspects that are problematic um, in terms of recruiting for forensics? Because it is a fulfilling field, but I think there's maybe a lot of stereotypes and um, misconceptions about it that right. people we're not exposed to besides like what media shows us. So but shout out to, I love doing shout outs, y'all. A shout out to the programs and everybody else who like supports, regardless of what their residents do, something that makes them successful and something that makes them feel like they were glad they chose that program. So, yeah, there's, there's so many amazing careers in pathology and, you know, do what you love because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's you that's got to do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I've gotten to know you a little bit through social media. So let's talk about Twitter for a second. Mm-hmm. Tell tell us about your Twitter handle. The name Blue Hat Comics eighty five. So eighty five for a little, you know, I was born in nineteen eighty five. But don't come up to me and talking about I'm thirty six or thirty five. No, mamas, I am twenty five forever and always. So when I was when I so th- that was eighty five. Now the comics portion is because I liked comics and. I remember in my personal statement, I talked about the visual aspect of like comic books. I got to them when I was younger. They started with like the Marvel cards, but like it grew to comics. And I was so like enmeshed in like the visual aspect of storytelling. Like I incorporated that into my my personal statement because I said, you know, like I'm very visual and I found like that's like how I can contribute or how why I feel like pathology is a good fit for me. Like I like the visuals and the colors and the H&Es and stuff like that. Now, the Blue Hats, that is a story that kind of goes back to community college. So when I was at community college, this was 2000, early 2000s. And Dave Chappelle was, um, Dave Chappelle is so popular, but he had his show out. And I remember one time he came out with this like, this like blue like cap hat. And I was like, that's so cool. Like I wanted one. And so I, when I was community college, I think it was like, I we were done with classes and I was walking around in like my neighborhood I was at and I seen it. Like, I was like, Oh my God, like that's a Dave Chappelle hat. Like I want that hat. So I got this hat and like, I just wore it. Like, cause I was like, I was like, man, it's so awesome. And I had it and I wore it during the winter and it kind of turned sort of spring too. And then it became like a running joke. Cause I, I still have it. I still have this blue hat. Um, but like it became a running joke. So when I went to four year to commit to do um, engineering at university of Buffalo, people were just like, there. apparently there was an underground bet to know if I was bald or not because I always had the cap on. And so, um, which I wish I knew about because I probably could have like favored the odds so I win at the end, but I didn't know about it till the end. I took my hat off. I'm like, I'm not bald, but like, you know, I mean, if there's a bet going on and people are having like, you know, if there was actual money involved, I mean, I could have shaved my head and like, been in a windfall which somebody just told me but whatever um but yeah so that's where it came out the blue hat comics at e5 is just apartment two of like everything um of just those experiences i set up twitter i think back in 2015 and this was like when i was in med school or or so i didn't use it for years now i got to suny upstate and my senior there were two senior residents who were who did a little introduction for us during boot camp about social media. And they were just like, yeah, it is an upcoming thing. Uh, or it has been a thing. And there's people like Dr. Jared Gardner, um, Dr. Fitzhugh's on. I think, I think y'all were on there too. But like, I said, that's so awesome. Now, this also coincided with like, um, when I was leaving surgery, I decided or wanted to have like some sort of like visual time-lapse about like where I started or where I finished surgery and like 
sort of my new journey going into pathology. And so I started a Twitter account when I got there, but I took lots of pictures, like selfies. Like that was just my thing. Like I'm gonna take selfies and showing like of everybody that I'm interacting with. And so it was so, it was, it was funny because like, I remember the program coordinated director, like I think it was the first, second day. And I was like, let's take a selfie, everybody. And they looked at me like, what? And the program coordinator, Karen, um, she was like, okay, let, let's do it. And my program director was like, uh, you know, and, but I was like, no, you, you know, you get into it. And so we, we decided to, like, I decided that it was like, that was how I was going to put on Twitter and kind of go on from there. And I, I didn't really expect like to gain followers or anything. Like I just, I was doing it personally just for myself to see like a record of like where I've been and where I was going. And then my program coordinator um, was like, we can use this like as promotional material for the, for the residency. I'm like, sure. Okay. So I started taking selfies of like friends and residents that were around. And I was super ecstatic to like be able to go home and like not feel like depressed um, from like working all day in the hospital and not getting any sleep. And so I um, used that and then I also started posting cases. I was like, well, you know, I've seen everybody else do it. Like I see an interesting case, even as a first year, which, you know, is very, it's it, as a first year resident posting cases and you're switching into a field that, you, you know, you're sort of learning about, it was very, um, there was a lot of hesitancy because it's like, okay, what if I say this wrong? Or what if I can't answer this question? Like, I don't want to be seen as a fraud. Like I just got into this field, you know, and I don't want people to be like, you know, wow, like that's, that's, that's a horrible description. You're completely wrong. And so I, I think I just post like smaller cases and then they kind of like grew from there and there. Um, and yeah. And so that's how like Twitter for me started. And I just kind of kept it like, I just kept it throughout. So Oh, that's so cool. And mm-hmm. I, I think what you did to get started on Twitter, you know, posting cases and, and selfies, that's a, that's just such a great way to do it. And I, I think that people that are starting starting out and trying to figure out what to do, you don't have to post the most complicated case. You can post something pretty basic with a pretty straightforward teaching point, and that's still going to get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think even when I was a second year going to conferences, there were people you know, I, I was, I was realizing I was connecting with people on Twitter and it's always, I feel like the, it's like the limiting things are, am I an imposter for posting something? And can I really answer their question? And again, you don't have to put a complicated case, like put something on there. I remember putting in a Meckles diverticulum, I think my second year, cause I thought it was cool. Um, but yeah, so do that. And then also uh, people felt like, you know, Twitter's going, like I'm left behind or people have like, so much followers and I'm just like, I don't like, you know, in general, people don't start out with having, you know, 7,000 or 9,000 followers, stuff like that. I wouldn't say the follower number is something to really look into. I think it's something that happens over time. I would say if you want to use Twitter as both a networking tool and educational tool, that it's something you can use. I mean, I use it primarily, but I know there's other social media platforms like Instagram and LinkedIn, um, that people use. And I know a lot of people are, are starting their TikTok. Um, I know Marco Stepe, hey friend, he's starting his TikTok. And um, um, Lacey, she also has her TikTok as well too, encouraging students. So there's all the platforms, but like do something that you're comfortable with, uh, put it up, press the send button and see what happens. Well, that's a great advice. I want to see if we can talk a little bit about the more difficult aspects of social media. So, mm-hmm. and I, I, I know for a fact that the experience I have as a cisgender straight white male is not the same experience that you have on social media. And it's not just you, it's, it's other folks of color. And, and I know that I've, you know, as, as I've interacted with people's tweets, I've had to block some really ignorant posts. Uh Uh And I remember you had a time where you were posting about, you were thinking about stepping away from social media. And I'm really glad you didn't because I think Uh path Twitter is better for having your voice, but tell us a little bit about what your experience is like and you know, what, what got you thinking about stepping away from social media and ultimately why you're, why you stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So 
let's let's talk about that those aspects first. Now, I can think of one experience I had where I posted something, and this is recently, but I posted something about um, being black in or a BIPOC in medicine, and being told stuff like, or hearing stuff like, "Oh, you're so lucky you got in," or straightforward, "Oh, you just got in because you're black." Or in medical school, having, and you know, it, this is the way the society is. Imagine you, you're in medicine, you have people who are taking care of you and they've never met a person of color before. So I would be like their first interaction with a person of color. So um, going back to the tweet, it just, it was something where somebody had mentioned about like using um, studies and statistics that were definitely biased about there's more um, blacks going in. Um, and you know, it, at that point it was like, uh, no. So that ended amicably. Basically like the person didn't do that even though I'm thinking like this person's gonna troll me sometime in the near future. Now I've, I have seen um, and talked to like, for example, females and females of color who get private DMs from like people asking very inappropriate questions or um, getting the, you know, the trolls who come out and say things completely arrogant and they have to block that. Now, you know, at this point, I, I, I just like, wow, like who, because like, I'm thinking to myself, like, do I want to deal with that in that aspect? I mean, every, and no, no, I'll be honest about it. Like in a way, I remember when, not that moment happened and I'm mumbling the stories, but let's talk about when I was thinking about bleeding. I, I believe there was the begin, like when this is before George Floyd a bit, but there was some racial stuff that was going on between, um, there was racial stuff that was happening, always happening, I'm sorry. But the interactions of people of color and, and, and police, and I just remember just feeling like, um, seeing all that negative information from the media because it just kept on saying like, oh, this is what's going to happen. This happens, this happens. And I was just like, you know, I don't really feel like I have much more to add on Twitter and I just don't want to read that negativity. And like, do I just go away with a hiatus or do I just like delete my Twitter account overall? And I was like, do I post this? Do I not post this? Like, you know, do people, are people going to think this is a, like a stunt to gain more followers? And it wasn't. I was like, literally just going to walk away and just be like, the people I've made friends with, they have my email. And I just, I go on from there because that's that. Um, and there was definitely an outpouring of like positive responses of like, not leave, like, don't leave, like, we value your voice and stuff like that. Now, here I am still thinking about the numbers. Like, I mean, I, at most, you know, my tweets get probably like five or 10 likes. But, and then, but I realized like throughout that thinking process, like regardless of how many likes you have, if one person reads it, regardless if you know they do or not, like you've influenced their thought process. So why not just continue doing it and like going on from there? So I stayed on, it was just like, well, I'm just, I'll be here to say, I mean, the, the outpouring of positivity was great too. Um, and that's also where it changed for me because I've seen other um, maybe I did it a little before, but I've seen other physicians or those in the medical realm or even outside the medical realm who were people of color talking about racial injustice. And I, and I felt like, do I say something? Because I feel like in, in medicine in a way, or just in society, like, or it's, it, it, it's our quote unquote hard topic to talk about because nobody's talked about it or, or talks about it openly unless like it's between people of color doing it. And so I started to use that as a way of for advocacy, um, even though it was like small compared to like whatever else is doing. I was like, man, like I'm going to say something because I have to experience this. Now, you know, I, I didn't bring those, I don't bring it up as much, but like I remember thinking, do I say something about being black and driving in general? And I think I mentioned a couple of like tweets here and there, but like, for those who didn't know, I, there was, uh, I had a high anxiety for a year, um, you know, after uh, the death of George Floyd, because I was so, I became so hyper acute of just like, if I, for some reason, look at a cop wrong, 
or look up any person um, in a police station wrong, like, is that it? Like, you know, is my life over? Is there some big morbidity that's, that's going to happen to me or is that it? Um, I remember one time I actually got pulled over by cops. This is like the August um, of that year, of last year. And I just remember I, I was about to cry because I'm just like, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. I, I, I'm thinking like I didn't call my family. They have no idea where I'm at. I mean, I was still in Syracuse, but they, they didn't know like how my day went. Um, what offense are they going to say that I did? Are, you know, like, is this going to become, quote unquote, a violent thing? Like, what's going to happen? And uh, I remember, like, they were, um, they eventually, like, you know, had me off for a warning. But I remember going to, I, there was a gas station that was close to Syracuse. And, like, I literally, like, started crying because it literally was a near-death experience. Like, the racial trauma is real out there. And I remember driving home so, because it was 15 minutes for me, and I was driving home just, like, shaking and hoping that I don't get pulled over ever, like over at all. And I'm just like, please, 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 like, let me get back home. And I got back home and I felt so safe. And then ever since then, it's like when I was driving or every time I drove, I had um, even back and forth to the hospital, regardless of it was day or night, I get so much anxiety. I, I hate driving because I don't want to be a victim of, of brutality. I just, I don't. So um, that's how I, that's why I'm staying on Twitter. And I use that as a turning point for some advocacy one way or another. Um, but I, I, I think for me, I bring this up because it's, it's definitely important for people to know regardless of where they're at. I mean, I know those of us in color of color know that experience and see it. Um, I know we have to play by, in a way, different rules in order just to be safe and get home safely. But for me, that anxiety was real. I went to therapy, um, Zoom therapy, because I was just like, I, I need to find a way to deal with this because I, I just was trembling every time I got into the car. And every time I got out the car, I felt like the luckiest person ever because I wasn't pulled over. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I think mm-hmm. it's really important for people to hear that if they don't experience it themselves. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that you've channeled a lot of your passion for advocacy into your podcast. So tell us about mm-hmm. how you came up. How did you come to the idea of doing a podcast and, and how did you get it started? Yes. So let's transition. Yes. Friends, my podcast is called Diversify and Path. And to explain the name, it was at first I, I was going back and forth as to how can I make this like something. And I, I felt like if I said diversity and pathology, it's a topic, but how do I make it unique enough like to make it my like own? Because the fear was if I just say diversity and pathology, if it's like typed up in like Google and SEO, like how much like there'd be a lot of articles that are discussed about there are articles that talked about it or diversity would you know come up. And so I, I decided to say diversify as an investment because I feel like I talked to my dad about investments here and there. Well, I'm not a financial genius, but like I thought that would be a cool, unique twist on it. Even though I think at the beginning people thought it said diversity in path, and I was just like, no, it's diversified. I, I get the T and the F, you know, switch. Um, and I think it became a unique enough name in order to sort of stand out uh, and say like, this is something that I'm creating, and this is like my the interviews I'm having with people and, and and even with the guests too uh I have to say that I really thank them for the time because they didn't have to come on but they did and so that's where the, the name came from I was on the um path pod podcast and that was so fun and then I got invited to another podcast by Maria Luco who does a um battle cry podcast and that was fun and I remember like during the pandemic, you know, when I was driving, the one thing that at least calmed me down a bit was listening to podcasts. And I listened to like podcasts just do out. And I remember just like being so interactive, like talking back to like the podcast, like as if they can hear me, like it's already recorded <laughs> and edited, like they can't hear me, whatever. But I remember I was like, you know, it gave me some joy doing that. And I felt like, wow, like that'd be so awesome. Um, 
So I was studying through, I was studying through the boards and I had the idea in, my, in the back of my head, like, can I even do it? Is it something that I'm capable of doing? It seems like a lot of like hard um, steps to go through. So I do what everybody else usually does and YouTubed it and um, was so like, again, just immersed in like the whole podcasting culture. And I was like, man, like if I did a podcast, what would it be? And it just all coalesced together. Cause I said, I would love to talk about like advocacy stuff, but I also, also love hearing people's stories. Um, I like talking to them and like, you know, getting aspects of things they may not be able to share through Twitter because of the fact it's a 200 and I think 80 word character limit um, or things that they can't really share too much because if they're in a professional society, maybe they they have to act, a, you know, a certain way. Um, and so I told a few people that I was thinking about starting a podcast. Now I was studying for boards too. So it was super hectic. And so during my like, like times to like relax from not studying, I would just like learn as much as I can, take as much notes, um, realizing that to me, the editing portion would have been like the scariest part. Cause it's like, how do, how does that even go about? And um, I said, yeah, I'm gonna start a podcast. I was like, don't tell anybody, please. Like, I just want to, let's see what happens. And so I got like a Yeti mic and uh, I had my like PC um, PC book uh, Spectre. I forgot. I don't know what, what like model is, but I got my PC that's functioning. And you know, I go through and find that there's different subscriptions that basically you can do for free or, or things you can um, you can kind of pay to have to help store your podcast. But like in general, I I said. Um, I talked to Nicole because she was my first guest. And we, like me and her, we've talked, like Nicole Jackson, she's a forensic pathologist for those who, who are non-pathology and not may not know. Um, she, we and her, we talked for like an hour and a half before like the podcast started. And I said, Nicole, like, this is about to start. I don't really know like what I'm doing. She's like, nah, you know, it'll work out. You got this. And I was like, all right. So every time y'all hear me say like, all right, like stuff like that, that's literally the first like thing I said. And I was just like, I might just kind of keep it as an ongoing thing. Cause that's just how, so I Nicole and I said, Nicole, I don't know how this is going to work out. You know, like if, if anything, if it's like one or two people listening, cause I've heard like to do content creation, you may not get a lot of people listening in the beginning. And I was like, you know, maybe I just do a 10 episode thing and kind of see how it goes after a couple of months and then head back. And that was just kind of my internal thinking. And like when it launched, I was like, yeah, you know, like I'm sure it'll be like some people listening to it. I'll get like, oh yeah, like two or three people. But I was so surprised and shocked that me putting like all this stuff together and creating, helping creating this content by having a conversation about race and gender and other stuff that we don't openly talk about with people that I've met through Twitter and like have laughter and conversations. Like I was like completely happy about that. Cause I, I had realized another portion of myself that I really didn't think I had like on like using that creative aspect and in a way use content creation and all that in order to like make these episodes happen. So, so yeah, so yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I remember each of the episodes and I remember the conversations I've had with people before and after. And like, I remember the, the ones that I just completely laugh about, like, you know, I'll, I'll say it like Marcos Lepe and um, Saeed T. Hoda, like we, I was laughing so much with them because uh, <laughs> they were hilarious but yeah it, it was you know it's, it's it, it brings me like joy to see that other people can can understand what I would like to create and see their responses and like get an overall positive you know view about it while I'm still learning how to um get better with each episode well I've really enjoyed your podcast and I I think you're putting some really important conversations out there and I I hope you can keep it going. It's really been a pleasure to listen to. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, and I, you know, for, for those who are listening, I, um, so my my office where I work at in a hospital has like very spotty Wi-Fi. So I don't get, I don't see anything on Twitter or anything 
unless I either walk out to the cafeteria or it's like at the end of the day. And then I'm like, oh, people liked it. Like, that's great. <laughs> I can't interact because I'm just like in this dead zone, which is all right. Like, I'm glad that it's like growing on its own, basically. Well, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you had some mentors that were crucial for keeping you on track to get into medical school and ultimately into residency. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to people in pathology about how to attract more, more Michael Williams to pathology? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to think that I'm a unique person, but you know, it's all right. I mean, if there's more of me out there, y'all, come on. I, I, I think it's just let, letting people be natural and being themselves. Um, you know, in medicine, I, I have to say that it, when I was doing my surgery year, I mean, I was an intern then, but it just seemed like I really couldn't evolve outside of medicine while I was still in medicine or doing the surgery year. And I felt like I was just kind of being robotic at ways. Um, and so for those who are attracting or want to attract more people who are just positive and um, rather extroverted or introverted, whatever um, they are at in terms of, um, you know, their life or figuring themselves out, like just listen to them and see if they're people who you can encourage to, I mean, first come in pathology, but also encourage them to do research or encourage them about opportunities they may not know existed or like uh, see either they can, you can help them connect with somebody that you know has similar interests to them. I think throughout that, like you're welcoming and opening people to be more of themselves, to be like, okay, like this is somebody or somebody, a place, an institution I can, I can grow and see myself thrive. Um, and also I have to say another thing too, is to make sure like you tell the trainees or people you come in that like you have their back. Because if something was to happen, like in terms of a argument with another clinical service and not, not like, I thought we're not, we're not aggressive people. I just kind of talk a lot, um, but we're not aggressive people, but like say something happens and there's a misunderstanding and the clinical service, like for some reason or another has like really one hot headed person who's like coming after the resident, you, you know, let them know, like, don't worry, we'll take care of that. Like you are an important portion of this team. So having that mm-hmm. aspect of saying, all right, like I feel valued and comfort and like I can come here and be myself in the aspect and learn and grow and be able to feel like I can accomplish what I can um, during the residency and even a fellowship. I, I think those are just like really underlying things that can help out attract people um, who may be super energetic and may do something completely out of this world that they didn't think they were capable of themselves. So that's great advice for people that are in the field. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what advice you would give to people that are considering pathology as a Mm -hmm. career. Yes, friends. Now, listen, I, <laughs> I'm making this sound like a game show. No, I, I have to be honest. I was thinking, I, I, I did surgery for a year. I wasn't 100% sold on it. I remember the surgeon who said, if you go through medical school and you're picking specialty and you hate everything else besides surgery and you can you could do surgery, then that's the field for you. But if you're doing, if you think surgery and something else, do that something else because you want to be happy with your career. And so when I chose, um, when I was going through and I chose pathology, finally on the clinical side, not from the medical student side, but being clinical, I realized that I loved the diagnostic aspect of medicine. Like I would be looking at labs. I'm like, how are these labs calculated? You know, like, and I would talk to people and they're just like, we're rounding. So why are you asking this question? I'm just like, isn't this intriguing? Uh, And when I got to do the rotation, I loved it. Like, I felt like it was such a great work, um, such life balance, I guess, as a male saying that, because of the fact that I wasn't um, stressed, I was, I had time to read, I had time to really look and think about cases. So for those who are thinking about pathology or I know it's hard because sometimes you may not have pathology rotations or access to pathology in general, I would say that check it out. I think it's something that can give you a great um, 
balance in life in terms of balancing medicine and your non-medical, your non-medicine self. It allows you to be diagnostic and help patients, even though you may not see them as much, at least on the AP side, um, you are still able to impact people in very important ways. You're able to talk to clinicians and help guide them to say what lab tests to order, what stains that we're going to order to help out. Um, even with the advent of like molecular and digital imaging coming out too, you know, it's awesome to see that pathologists are there pushing, pushing those fields forward. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things you can do in, um, you know, I'll, I'm gonna say outside the hospital, but in a way, probably non-clinical and look at other passions that you may have that you may have lost in med school because you were just so busy studying um, or de- dealing with the um, rotations and the clerkships um, and those NBMEs. But like, I, I feel like it, it was such a great um, thing for me that I'm glad that I found it. Because I think if I didn't know, if I, if I didn't know about pathology, I don't know if I would still be in medicine now. Dr. Williams, it's been so great to catch up with you and, and hear more about you. And it's it's wonderful to see you thriving and on Twitter and having your podcast blowing up. I can't wait to see what you do next. Yay! Thank you so much for having me on here. It's been so fun. This is like my part two of um, being on the podcast. So it's been so great. And I, I, I love it. It's kind of like in... Um, like movies when you have the sequels that's coming out and you hope that the sequel <laughs> is better than the first. But if I do a third, I feel like it's going to drop in quality. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Arnold. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Pod.